Well, good morning. Good morning. How are y'all doing today? Good? It's a week before Christmas. People got their Christmas best on. Right? You got your Christmas suit. I see you. I see you. That looks great, brother. So glad to have all of y'all here today. Let's, let's pray. Glad we got folks engaged. We're here to worship a great God. Let's pray to this great God. Father, once again, we are grateful that we get to worship you and to hear from your word. We're thankful, uh, God, all the songs that we've sung, all the scriptures that have been read have just reminded us of the fact that um, not just that we can know you, but that you know us, Father. You care for us. You love us. You provide. You take care of us, Lord. And if we would just know that, if that truth would be ours, not just something that we recite, but something, uh, Lord, that we hold on to, that our whole lives would change. And we pray that that would be the case today. We come to your word because we know that we need you to reinforce these truths in our life. Listen, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, it's Christmas. Christmas will be this Friday. And what will take place is you'll have a bunch of people um, that Friday's going to come and go and they're going to be very content. And you're going to have a bunch of folks that Friday's going to come and go, and they're going to be very discontent. One of the funny things about the end of this year, this kind of two-week stretch, um, is it's so weird, right? Like, this week is all about getting the things that we want. And the next year is New Year's, and it's all uh, uh, about trying to get all the things that we want that we don't have. So contentment and discontentment uh, just see kind of the fullest and truest expressions here in the span of two weeks. Uh, and so one thing that I've found, and uh, as I've just spent time and just reflected on these few weeks, is this. One thing I know about all of us here in this room, one thing that we all have in common is this, is that we all want. We all know what it is to want. And it's not just that we all know what it is to want. In some ways, all that we know is want. Our life is consumed by want, right? We daydream about the things that we want. We actually dream about the things that we want. We work for the things that we want. We worry for the things that we want. We argue about the things that we want but don't have. We enjoy the things that we want once we get them. We envy the things that we want when somebody else has those things that we do. And then we finally get those things, we use them, and then we become very discontent with all of what we have. Right? What else do we do but interact with wants? Wants consume all of our lives. And, and so here's what want does. Want drives activity. If you want something, it means that you work for it. Now, right this time of the year, folks with full-time jobs, or they uh, still work their job, but they get an additional job, and they work harder just so that they can get what they want. So we all want something. Wanting for us means working and working to get the things that we want. But one thing that we find out very, very quickly is that just because I work for something that I want, and I get that thing, it doesn't mean that I stop wanting. 
there's something else that I want, so there's something else that I'll work for. And, and so what we do is we find ourselves wanting drives working. Working means wanting. Wanting drives working. And on and on and on. We work, we work, we work. And is that what we really want? Do we really want to be in a never-ending cycle of work? No. So I did start off and say, well, we all want something, but I want to change that up a bit. I'm convinced that all of us here in this room, it's not just that we all want something. We all want the same thing. And it's that want that lies right un un underneath the want, right? Why do you want the things that you want? Why do you want money? Why do you want more money? So that when you go into the store and find what you want, you can alleviate yourself of the burden of wanting and you can just have. Why do you want a new job? Why do you want a new spouse sometimes? Why do you want? Why do you want sex? Why do you want affirmation? Because at the end of the day, I'm convinced that all of us want to rest. What you want and what I want is not to want. Wanting is agonizing. Right? Though we love the things that we want, we loathe the act of wanting. We want to be at peace. We want to be at rest. So the question is, if we all want something, we all want the same thing, but the experience that we have in life is wanting means more working, how do we get to a place where we cannot want? Is there a, a way to get to that place where we don't want. And I think that there is, and I mean, if I didn't think that there is, then, then, then I'd be done right now, and I'd sit down and we go home. But I think that there is. Um, and it comes in Psalms 23. And so if you would turn with me there to Psalms 23. Like Tripp said, we uh, took a break from Mark, and through these last three weeks of the year, um, all of the sermons are basically going to start with knowing God means. We talk all the, the time about what it means to know God, but we want to take time here at the end of the year saying, wait, 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 knowing God actually means something for our lives. And last week, Tripp did an amazing job and just shared, knowing God means that we don't have to know fear. And this week, we're going to spend our time on knowing God means that we don't have to know one. And we can read that, and it seems at times like it's too good to be true. Is that really true? Can we really have that? And we can, and one of the best things is that, right, the desire that unites us all, the agony of wanting and wanting to be the place where we don't want, that as we go to the Bible, one of the amazing providences of our great God, is that the answer and the solution is found in such a familiar place. Psalms 23, probably the most recited and rehearsed psalm, starts off and addresses this deep concern. Right? And so for 
those of y'all in here that may feel like that the Bible is so hard to read or God is so uh, distant or God is so far off, I just want to encourage you by the fact that there's so much in here that's hard, but there's so much in here that's very, very plain. God is not trying to hide our greatest joys from us. He makes it plain to invite us in. Psalms 23, right? the, the rest of the Psalms, you'll walk through them, and, and there's Psalms of complaints, frustrations, all of these things. The amazing thing about this Psalm is that there's not one complaint in it. This is just a Psalm of comfort, of David reflecting on this great God. And to know God means that we don't have to know want. And so in our search for want, in our search for this rest, the very first thing that we see from him is this, that any successful search for rest begins with the clear sight of God. Any successful search for rest begins with the clear sight of God. Psalms 23.1 says this, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. A search for rest, and, and, and any search for rest, it doesn't start with our work, but it starts with this clear sight of God. And the reason why we start here at this verse is because David has what you and I want. The Lord is my shepherd, and he goes on and says this, I shall not want. He has this thing that we call contentment, perfect peace, rest. Contentment is this. It's not about the things that you have. Contentment is all about the relationship between the things that you have and the things that you want. When your haves and your wants are... Uh, Compliment one another, you're content. When your haves and your wants are in conflict, you're discontent. So there's two ways to be discontent. One is this, I don't have what I want. But the next way to be discontent is this, I don't want what I have. Both of those are when our wants and our haves uh, run into one uh, uh, another. I don't want or... I don't have what I want. If you think that your biggest problem is that I don't have the things that I want, then the very next thing that you're going to do, what you're going to spend all your time on, is to try to work for those things that you want. That you think, my discontentment is primarily because I don't have these things. And so you'll spend time trying to get a better job, trying to get more money, trying to change your spouse, trying to get married. It's looking for joy in something. I'm discontent. Life's bad. I want because I don't have all of the things that I want. And you'll work. And it's the easiest thing to do because it's easy to change our work. It's easy to change our rhythms and our routine. It's just a matter of discipline, right? The front end of the year, what's going to take place is for the month of January, people are going to change their routines and they're going to work because they want to get what they want. 
But that's not the uh, hardest thing to change. The hardest thing to change is not our work, but it's our want. It's much harder to change. Not, I don't have what I want, because you can get that. But when you get to a point where you come to the conclusion, now my biggest problem is that I don't want what I have, that's what makes it really, really hard. Because then what takes place is you start to talk, uh, you start to work in the arena of passions and desire. And one thing that you find out is that passions and desires and what you want don't just change based on new information. Documentaries don't change desire. Information doesn't, right? So, um, yeah, about six months ago, me and LB and a crew of folks from the church uh, uh, started to go to the gym religiously four times per week, right? We changed our work. But then what takes place is I drive back home, and on the way back home, there's a McDonald's that sits right at the corner of this stoplight. Listen, I've seen Food, Inc., right? I've seen all of the things that are bad. I know all of the facts. I know that I shouldn't want it. But there's something about the way that they tightly pack the pockets of syrup into the pancakes and the McGriddle that's wrapped around the fake meat that, <laughs> that I just can't, like, my passions, they awake. And all of the facts, all of the information, it doesn't do anything for me. What I've found is that um, musicians are often the best theologians because they have a way of putting these complex theological truths into short phrases. And the best 13 words that I've heard to describe this um, is this passions and how they war. My mind's telling me no, <laughs> but my body, my body's telling me yeah, Hess, Robert Sylvester <laughs> Kelly. What takes place? What takes place is this, right? You come to the end David says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. We've recited it a hundred times. For those of us that know the Lord, we say, I shouldn't want, I shouldn't want, I shouldn't want. But at the end of the day, we do. And it's not just going to change by facts. It's not just going to change by somebody saying, you shouldn't want this. Passions or desires aren't changed by being told the right thing. Passions and desires are being changed. They're changed by tasting something better. And so what David gives us in this song is his testimony of how good God has been to him so that you and I will reluctantly put down the things that are the end of our spoon, and taste the goodness of God. David gives us this song saying, God is my shepherd, I shall not want. 
to rope in everybody else who feels that their life is consumed in wanting and being discontent so that we would know this great God. David makes a bold, bold statement here, and I do want you to know it requires you to respond. What he says is, it is possible for somebody to find themselves in this life that's consumed with people wanting and to be completely content and to say, I shall not want. A bold statement like that requires change. It's either a bold lie or it's the truth. If it's a lie and you had any shred of decency inside of you, you would spend your whole life trying to warn people, don't listen to him. He's giving you a false promise and it's going to cost you your life and you're not going to find joy. Or if it's the truth and you had any shred of decency inside of you, you wouldn't just take it for yourself but you would spend your whole life spreading this truth to people that are trying to find contentment elsewhere, and you would tell them, there's none to be found there. You're wasting your time. You'll ruin your marriage. You'll ruin your relationships. You tell them to come. This is a bold statement that's either a landmine or a buried treasure. If it's a landmine, you have to do all that you can to skirt around it. If it's a buried treasure, you have to dig deep. Either way, we have to take into account what's buried in this statement. Now, I don't think that it's a lie, because if I thought it was a lie, then again, I would stop right now and we would all go home. I believe that it's the truth, and so what I want to do is take time and just dive down deep into this, uh, uh, we can't come across a statement like this and just gloss over. This has the potential to change all of our lives. And so we may read this. For those of us that have grown up in the church, we may read this and say, well, wait a minute, John. I know God. God is my shepherd, but I still feel like I'm constantly yearning and wanting something else. That's the irony of this right here, right? David has what we want, but many of us in this room would claim to have what he has, but yet we don't have what he has. And if the end of our sentence doesn't end up like his, I shall not want, then we don't have what he has. If you don't have the beginning of the sentence the way that he does, the end of your sentence will never end up that way. Or to put it more positively, everyone who starts off their sentence the way that he does will find out that it leads to this end of the sentence. Two things about all of us in this room is we all have a sentence in our head that ends off this way. I shall not want. But because we are dependent creatures, we all have a beginning of the sentence that starts off with something else. If I just had more money, I shall not want. 
if I just had somebody to tell me how beautiful and attractive that I was, then I really wouldn't want. If I just had a more stable job, if I just had a better family, if I just had something, everybody starts their sentence off some way in hopes of trying to lead you down to that end. And what we don't want to do in our time right now is to sit in your seat and try to convince yourself that the Lord is your shepherd if the sentence doesn't end off that way for you. If you don't feel that way on the inside, now is a great time for you to just sit back and to say, I don't feel that I don't have what he has. Spend your time identifying. What is it? What do I really hope for? What do I daydream about? What do I dream about? What do I worry about? What do I work for? What do I enjoy? What do I envy? What's really my want? And whatever lies at the front of that sentence, that is your shepherd, that is your God. And when you put anything else other than God at the front of that sentence, it's not strong enough to hold up the pressures and the worries and the concerns of life. Any successful search for rest has to start with a clear sight of God. And I use that word clear um, very clearly because at the end of the day, uh, two people can look at the same person and see and feel two completely different things. Like, uh, my dad is 40 years old, old, older than I am. Um, and so if, if, if George Foreman was here in the room right now, me and my dad could both look at him. And my dad would think of the titles that he won, the fights that he fought, the great feats that he did. But I'd look, look at him and I'd think all of the chicken that I cooked in college, all of the burgers, all of the things that I fried on his grill. His grill was the great contribution to my world from him. It's the same person, but our perspectives are completely different. Faced with a fight, my dad would run to him. Faced with a fight, I wouldn't run to him. Faced with chicken that was thawed, I would go to him. My sight of him is the thing that affects the way that I act. And so as David says, the Lord is my shepherd, David has this very, very clear sight of him. And so those five words could all take time, and we could preach on each one of those five words. I want to take three really, really quickly and help you see what it is that David sees when he looks at God. The very first one that we want to start off with, and these are just going to be really, really brief, is, is. That when he looks at God, he says that the Lord is my shepherd. Not he used to be, not he might be, not I'm sure, not, not just that he will be, but Presently, right now, there is a confidence that God is who he says that he is. There's an assurance and a boldness 
is. The very next word is shepherd. David is not just confident that God stays the same, but now he talks about the character of God. And here's the beautiful thing, that a shepherd is very much like a parent. He looks after all of the needs of his sheep. He cares for them. It's this concept of total care. Right? Care of someone is one thing. Total care of somebody else is priceless. Um, for the past 15 years, uh, Forbes and, and this website has done what is the value of a stay-at-home mom? Somebody that gives total care right, for, 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 uh, for their kids while they're at home, and that's their job. So it goes on and it says, well, um, this is how much you would have to pay to outsource a CEO for this much time. This is how much you'd have to pay to outsource a driver and a cook and a psychiatrist and a therapist and all of these things. And it adds it up. And the total for 2014 was $118,000. It's saying that somebody that would give that total care family like that, it's, it's priceless. As David says, the Lord is my shepherd. It's somebody that gives that care, not just to one person or one family, but all of these families. A shepherd back in these days uh, guided a, a flock. Right? Sheep just don't they don't have a direction set in their mind and go there. You're going to be hard-pressed to go out and find a colony of sheep that have just set up shop. Wandering sheep are called dinner. There's no way to protect themselves. And so what you have is a shepherd and he's a guide. All the anxiety of what's going to be around each corner is the responsibility not of the sheep, but of the shepherd. We used to drive to New Orleans uh, from Houston about five times per year to see family that we had there. And one of the greatest decisions that my dad made uh, was to just drive through the night, right? My mom and my dad had five kids. Um, and so we tried to drive in, in the daytime. Things didn't really work well. And then one time, uh, we got in the car at 10 p.m. So we get in the car. We all fall asleep, and we wake up, and we're there. It was great because I didn't have to worry about where we were going to go. There was somebody else that was my guide. This is what a shepherd does all the anxiety and frustration about what comes next or what comes down the road it's not on the shoulders of the sheep but on the shoulders of the shepherd he's not just a guide but he's a provider in the summer do you know who's concerned about how they're going to eat in the fall and in the winter not the sheep they just eat what's right in front of them it it it, it frees them from worry. Charles Spurgeon says this, we have a shepherd that is thoughtful ever 
and we as sheep that are thoughtful never. Do you really believe that all of your provision, that it all really comes from God? That regardless of how much work that you do, your work doesn't bring you anything. It's all God's. If God's the one that provides, and God's the one that dictates how much we need and how much that we don't need. Sheep have to be content with what their shepherd provides because if he doesn't provide, they have nothing. And as David thinks of his God, he gets this clear sight of God. He's not just a guide. He's not just a provider, but he's a protector. He's the one that not only fights off danger, but foresees the very danger. Sheep can't guard themselves. There's nothing that they have to protect themselves. So as David looks at God, he sees something very unique. There's those of us that have grown up in church, and uh, you may be at a stage right now in your life where you are actively doing things that you know God has clearly warned you not to do. You're actively involved in a relationship that you shouldn't be in. You're actively involved in habits, patterns, things that you know that are wrong. And your picture of God is not all three of these things. Your picture of God, maybe if that's you, is primarily as someone that's a disciplinarian. I hope that he doesn't give me what I deserve. I'm really going to do better next time. You may be here and you may find yourself at a place where you're just really burnt out, really tired, really sick. And as you think of God, you think, he's the one that brought this on me. Why, God? Why me? And, And you don't view him through the lens of good eyes, but you view them through the lens of frustration because you know that he is the giver of health and he's chosen not to give you health at this time. As David looks at God, his view isn't cloudy, but it's very, very clear. And he thinks of God as a shepherd. But the most important word I think that we see here is my. That God could be a shepherd and it could do us no good. God could be all of these great things and God could do all of these great things for somebody else. But as David thinks of God as a shepherd, he's not just confident in who God says that he is, but he's confident that God's character is very, very close. He's my shepherd. All of these things that God does, he has done for me. Maybe there's some in here that just find themselves in a very, very tough time. And it's clear to you that God is a shepherd. It's clear to you that God may be somebody else's shepherd. But it may not be very clear to you that God is 
your shepherd because of the things that he seems to be doing, because of the heartache that seems to be present. And if that's you and you've known God as your shepherd at any point in time, I want to encourage you that God doesn't change. That one of the best things that you can do is look back like we talked through earlier, trace the way that God has provided in your life. Has He kept you? Think of your life and where you were, where you had been. Think of the times that you may have strayed but now you find yourself spiritually in a very, very good place. It's not because you brought yourself there. It's because you had a good shepherd that brought you back. And if he's done it once, he can do it again. David's search for, for rest starts with this, this clear sight of God. It doesn't end there, though, because as we've talked, wanting, it does mean work. It means that somebody has to labor for the things that we get. So David says, I shall not want. Who works? The beauty of this psalm is that in the same way that there's not a single complaint, do you know who has most of the active verbs here in this song? Not David, but God. Look here in verse 2 and 3. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Verse 2 and 3. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The beautiful thing about this psalm of these three things right here is that our rest doesn't come from our work. It comes from God's work. Our rest comes from God's actions, not ours. This is a psalm of rest, but it's not a psalm of David working, but God working. He leads me. He guides me. He makes me. God is the one that's active. You look through your whole Bible and what you'll find out is that every relationship that people find themselves in with God, God is the one that initiates. Nobody finds their way back to God. Wandering sheep don't wander back to their flock. They wander on their way to death. If a shepherd doesn't come and find them, then they're gone. The beauty is that God's active. God is the one that's going to bring this rest. You look at the start of your Bible when God makes the world. God makes the world in six days. God makes man on the sixth day. God tells him that he's going to work. But as Adam goes to sleep and wakes up that very next day, what's God doing? Resting. Adam's first full day on earth was not a day full of work, but a day full of rest. Rest that's been brought about by God. Rest at all times is always about God's work and not ours. God is the one that's active. Not only is God active, but he's autonomous, which means this. 
He doesn't need your permission to do the things that he does. This very first one, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He doesn't ask me. He doesn't suggest to me. He doesn't tell me that it's a good idea. But this shepherd makes us rest. Sometimes in our lives, I think it's so easy to interpret God's goodness through the lens of what he provides for us. But what this psalm helps us to see is that we have to interpret what God provides for us through the lens of his goodness. That what takes place is this. For eight years, my wife and I have wanted to have kids with no luck. And we've prayed and we've cried out and we've asked for God to take care of us. Is he bad? Is he wrong? No, I think this is one of those times where he's making us lie down in what he deems as green pastures for us. Green pastures of right now, sleep-filled nights. You know, I talked to uh, uh, a guy from the church, Briar, who just moved his whole life down here six months ago. And uh, their main thing is they've really wanted to show hospitality to people and to do all of this stuff, but they've had to redo their kitchen, and they've just been frustrated that they couldn't work to do what it is that they want to do. And as we sat down at breakfast, we sat and talked, and it's bright. You've been so busy through the course of these past few years, and as time goes on, you will be busy. This may be a season where God is making you to lie down in green pastures. And he doesn't need your provision. He doesn't need your permission to, to do that. God's active. He's autonomous. And lastly, his care as we look here, it's all encompassing. He makes me to lie down in green pastures, sheep in green pastures. That's all about physical provision and needs. He leads me beside still waters. That's about emotional peace and rest, right? Think of that scene, waters that are still, and God, God leads his, his sheep by those still, still waters. Verse 3, he restores my soul. It's one thing for your mind and your body to be tired. It's one thing for your soul to feel as if it's a wreck. And you're just distant and gone and driven down with despair. And the beautiful thing here is that you are not in charge. It's not your job to restore your own soul. You can't. It's God's work and he does it. We just bring those needs to him and he does this work. And not only does he do that work, but then he goes on and says, he leads me in paths of righteousness. That he doesn't just make me better, but he makes me better. And I keep on and I go and he leads me. And what you have here is a God, a shepherd, taking care of sheep who often view their most pressing need as their only need. Right? 
We tend to live life as if the thing that's most pressing is the only thing that we need God's help with. But the way that God cares for us is he, he cares for all of us. There's parts of our lives that we neglect. And if we neglect those things, we, we can't care for those things and take care of them. But there is no part, no aspect of our life that God looks at that he ne, ne, neglects. And there's no part of our life that he's not actively planning for how he's going to take care of us. Our rest isn't brought about by our work, but by God's. And now all of this is, it's good news, unless you read this and you're somebody like me that thinks, I'm confident that God does this. I'm sure he's done it in the past for somebody else, but eventually he's going to get tired of doing it for me. Because I know that in my life, I constantly wander. As much as I want to find myself in the place of David, as I look towards God, I don't start my search for contentment with him because I don't think that he'll really provide it all the time. I, I get tired of it. I'm exhausted and depressed after a long day. And the last thing that I want to do at times is come and read God's word. And I have this clear sight of him. If you're like me, you find yourself in a place where the picture of God in, in your mind is not something that is as appealing as it should be. It's not the first place that we run to for rest. And so what we find out is that we seldom run to God for rest. And when we don't run to God for rest, we run towards things that God condemns for rest. Eventually, God has to get tired of this. He has to lose steam when he sees that his actions in my life don't pay off. And then we get to this last stanza of the passage. Why does God do this? God does it for his name's sake. God's actions are fueled by his agenda, not my performance. And that's such good news. To hear all of these great things that God has done and to know he's never going to lose steam because the motivation for all of these things is his agenda and his glory. God does this for his name's sake. The important thing about a name is this. In the Bible, what takes place is often somebody's character is wrapped up in their name. So it's not just like folks have good names and bad names the way that you and I think of it, right? Um, I worked at this uh, sports camp years ago, um, and uh, I heard of these two kids that probably had the two worst names I've ever heard of in, in my life. Their names were Orangelo and Lamangelo. I put it here on the screen so that you could see how it's spelled. Um, their names were orange. Real people. Real people. Listen. <laughs> when God talks about he does this for his namesake, 
it's not that he has a bad name the way that you and I think of bad names, and I, I think I'm just going to go by my middle name. But it's that, right, there are certain names of people that when you hear their names, you don't think of good things. You don't think good thoughts. Hitler, Stalin, Timothy McVeigh, Bin Laden, the dentist, on and on and on. There's people <laughs> where all of these names come and you don't think good things. You want to run because for some reason, their name has been tarnished in your mind. Listen, if the end of your sentence is, I shall not want, and the beginning of the sentence that you write in your head doesn't start with the Lord as my shepherd, it's because God's name has been tarnished in your mind. There's something that's going on that makes you feel as if he's not the one that you can run to and embrace for protection and love. And it's not new. This is what's going on since the beginning of time. God made Adam. His first full day on earth was enjoying God's presence and resting in him. God didn't make us because he was lonely. God didn't make us because he needed anything. When God writes a sentence, God starts it off with, I shall not want. God made us so that we could enjoy him. So that you and I would know this great gift of contentment and peace that comes from finding rest in our Savior. St. Augustine says, God has formed us for himself, and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in him. But here's what takes place. God gives Adam a restriction. Adam interprets God's provision, or he in, interprets God's goodness to him through the lens of what God has withheld. Once your mental picture of God is gone and it's off, sin follows and it trickles down. And so what you have is, as God has interacted in history, the common thing for all of us is that we all want something, we all want the same thing, which is rest, but none of us believe that we can get it in God. And so we go after a bunch of things, a bunch of wants that really just show at the end of the day that we don't want God. He's not appealing to us. And as a result of that, we've earned death. We've earned life or existence outside of the presence of God. We, you and I, have all earned hell based after chasing the things that we want and shunning this great and true God. This is the predicament that we're in. And God constantly, time and again, pointed people to the way towards him, and everybody went the wrong way. Until the reason why we celebrate Christmas, that what God did, was God became a man, somebody that we could see, 
somebody that we could touch, somebody that we could experience. He made the beautiful things of God very tangible. And from Jesus' birth, he's embracing what it means to be a shepherd of people that constantly go astray. Jesus was born laying on a haystack so that you and I could lie down in green pastures. Jesus lived his life experiencing the most turbulent waters and on ships was actually calming the storm so that the disciples and people would see that Jesus can lead them beside still waters because he can make any water still. There's no storm that he can't handle. You talk about restoring souls. You talk about Jesus with Peter, the disciple that loved him so much, saying, I'll die for you. Denying Jesus. And in the Gospel of Matthew, it says that once he denied him that third time, that he looked at him. You talk about the despair there. You talk about the souls that need restoration and you look through your Bible and you see the, the life of a man that was king of God's people, the person who was supposed to lead them towards God, and he has an affair and murders somebody else. You talk about being driven to despair and your soul being crushed. You talk about people that should have been forsaken by God. And the thing that I love about Psalms 23 is that it comes right after Psalms 22. And 22 verse 1 starts off with the words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's only after Psalms 22 that we can get to a Psalms 23. The Lord is my shepherd. Why? Because the only person that earned God's rest was forsaken for us so that our soul could be restored. You talk about being led in the paths of righteousness. When Jesus talks about he's the way, the truth, and the life, he's the way to salvation. More, he's not just the guide. He's the one that comes back and gets us, puts us on his back, and takes us down a path that none of us could navigate. This is what Christ did for all of us. This is what he did for, and when I say all of us, I mean all straying sheep, all straying sheep. This is the shepherd. This is the picture that David sees as he looks at God. I wonder if this is the picture that you see when you think of God. I wonder if when you look at God, you see this. A God that would do all of these great things. At the end of the day, not just for us, not for our agenda, but for his. God does this to make his name great. To put a picture of him on display. 
the right one. So that now as we think of our search for rest and for joy and for peace, we, we find that it's not found and anywhere else but God himself. Bad sheep doesn't change the fact that he's a good shepherd. He didn't save us. He didn't give Jesus based on your performance, but on his, based on his agenda and purpose. God's purpose is to make his name great so that as you and I look for rest, we look to him. And as we look to him, and as we follow Jesus, what we find is he doesn't recruit us just to be workers or employees or staff. He recruits us to find our rest in him. So Christmas, at the end of the day, it is all about us finding what it is that we really and truly want. But it doesn't come as a result of our work. Our rest comes as a result of His. And if we really believe that, if that's really true, it changes everything. It changes generosity. If you really think that you have everything that you want and need in Christ, what's so precious that it would cause you to hold on to it with tight fists in the face of people that have all of these needs? Nothing. If you're really sure that he takes care of you. And so I want you to know this. God's work on your behalf has zero to do with the way that you perform now or how well you will perform in the future. God is constantly going to have to come back and get those of us that are his strange sheep. The nature of sheep stays the same. If we want to get to a place where we don't want it has nothing to do with provision. It has nothing to do with possessions. But it has everything to do with who's leading, who's your shepherd. And Jesus makes that offer to all of us very, very clearly. God can be your shepherd right now if you would just acknowledge your need for him. God, I need you to lead me. I trust that what your son did on the cross was that he died for my sins. So that I could really find myself in a place where I'm free from want. Those that know God don't have to know want. But they can experience a real and true contentment in this life that changes it all. Let's pray. Father. Um, once again, we're, we're grateful just for the comfort and security that we have in your word. We're grateful for the fact that you don't change. We change. We're inconsistent. We don't have the motivation to, to continue. We get burnt out. We get tired and exhausted. But you don't. You care for us greatly, Father, I pray 
uh, that you would just keep us close to you, that we would view our mission and our aim as staying close to you, and we would see following you as a good thing, not a burden, but it's a blessing that we get to walk with you on our path towards our true rest. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.